trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Okay, I'm going to do my best today to uh, achieve the impossible. What is that, you ask? It's to be relevant, or at least to present uh, information that is relevant to what's happening in the world, as well as what you and I can do about it without becoming pieces on somebody else's chessboard. If you want to really make a difference, you got to become an unplayable piece, at least unplayable in anybody's hands except your creator's. So I'm going to start with something that I really hope doesn't come off as pious or preachy. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm very discouraged to see how easily people can be uh, manipulated and, and agitated into a state of mind where the, the thought of eradicating an entire population of people has them breathing heavy and, and screaming for blood. Now, I'm being specifically a little bit vague here, but uh, but I'm pretty sure if you've been keeping track of news events, you understand that, uh, well, some terrible, terrible things happened in Israel over the weekend. No doubt about it. But what I'm hearing people do, and these are, these are often principled people. In other words, some of these are voices of reason that I've looked to and said, oh, yeah, this is a person that you ought to, you ought to give uh, some, some pretty close attention to what they're saying. They're openly advocating for Holocaust-type genocidal eradication of people. And I'm talking not just uh, active combatants who carried out a, you know, a terrible surprise attack. I'm going to put surprise in air quotes because there's a lot of questions that remain unanswered about how, you know, that, well, it caught them totally by surprise. Nobody could do anything to stop them. You know, come on, this is Israel we're talking about. But they took out... Uh, they took out a lot of innocent people. And in return, the response is taking out people. And it's and this is the problem. People who had nothing to do with it. People who were, you know, innocent. People who, you know, really don't have a whole lot of say, considering that they live in what uh, some have called the world's largest open-air prison, going to and from their, their particular enclave, tightly controlled, not by them but by the Israelis. And there, there's this drumbeat that's been sounding in the media. And people are outraged. And, and of course, the outrage porn is just pouring forth. I made the mistake. I switched on um, a talk radio show yesterday. Um, it was Sean Hannity, actually. And it was just as predictable as the sun rising in the east. There it was, you know, so you realize they, they, they took 40 Israeli babies and cut their heads off. Now, I've heard that claim, and I don't know if it's true. And here's my point. Neither do you. Neither does Sean Hannity. That is based on someone's say-so. I've seen nothing in terms of evidence provided. Yes, here's the documentation. Here's the photographs or whatever it is. And frankly, I'm, I'm not so much looking for, you know, well, if, as, long as, that's, as long as that's what happened, then let's kill every man, woman, and child who lives in Gaza. But I hear people who are taking that approach. Vicious enough to say the only way we're ever going to end this is to level 
everything. Now, we're talking about an area that has upwards of 2 million, maybe 3 million people living in it. We need to just flatten that entire area, and it doesn't matter if you are, you know, an old person. It doesn't matter if you're a baby born three seconds ago. They all need to die. You think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I'm That's an actual quote from a tweet that somebody sent out that I believe is, you know, considered, well, yes, of course. Now, if you, on the other hand, like, uh, oh, I can't remember. There, there was a couple of people. There was one, a former porn star, apparently she is Arabic, um, tweeted something about, hey, you know, to, to those of you in Gaza, when, when you're filming this stuff, make sure you hold your camera, you know, horizontally, your phone horizontal instead of vertical so we get a better view. Now, is that inappropriate and bloodthirsty? It is. But the reaction against her is, is you know, the pushback is just immediate and people are absolutely frenzied. But it's very acceptable for, again, the respectable folks, and this includes people in the U.S. government and basically every right-wing personality who's broadcasting to call for the wholesale murder of the innocent and the guilty alike. Look, I'm not a pacifist in the sense that I don't believe, you know, you should just have to sit back and take it if somebody comes to, to harm you, to take your life. I, I'll just put my cards on the table here. I believe that there are some things that are precious enough. Our families, our faith, our homes, that I believe God absolutely not only condones but, uh, but expects us to be responsible and, if necessary, to defend them to the shedding of blood. Now, that's, that's not looking for an excuse to go out there and shed blood. That's, you know, as a reluctant, uh, a regrettable last resort, we need to have skill at arms and have the will to fight for what actually matters. I'm not saying you should lay back and be a victim. But nowhere is this idea that, oh, you should, uh, you should go out there and kill everybody who even remotely disagrees with you or might agree. And, and this is what I really want to get to. You're being forced, you and I are being told, you have to choose. If you're not on the side of Israel and whatever they choose to do to Gaza, then you're on the side of the, the people who carried out that attack. I believe Hamas is, is the ones who are taking credit for it. Okay, that's a classic false dilemma. It's a fallacy. Well, that's the only two choices we have. And if you don't subscribe to what we're telling you, you have to subscribe. You need to choose now, right? Because it's urgent. You don't have time to think about this. You need to choose now or you support those monsters in every heinous thing that they did. Now, that's, a, that's an attempt to hack your mind. That's a deceptive, manipulative tactic to get people to agree to something that they don't really agree with, but... It's, it's uncomfortable. You can know that this is happening for sure. Paul Rosenberg, I tip my hat to you for, for teaching about fallacies. And he said, you will know for sure when someone is trying to, to pull your chain and get you to agree with something, the second you start to feel less certain of yourself, more afraid, and it feels like joining the crowd would be a more safe and desirable thing to do, that's when the emotional manipulation is taking place. That's when your conscience is being deceived by the social. And right now, what's alarming me is I'm seeing a lot of people whose consciences, um, if not just being deceived, are being switched off or perhaps inverted to something that is, is really dark and ugly. It's everything that they are condemning in the barbarism of the, uh, the Hamas members who attacked Israel on Saturday 
they're willing to apply to innocent people as well as the guilty in Gaza. They're willing to become what they're condemning and what they say they're trying to fight. So how do you fight this? When someone tries to put this, uh, this false dilemma in front of you, tells you, you have to choose. You must make a choice now. Whose side are you on? Paul Rosenberg says that's the moment to pull yourself away. In fact, he says, I recommend you physically step away if you can. But you need to pull away mentally, and it's challenging, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Once you step away and actually allow yourself to think, you should be able to find the flaw in their argument easily enough. In this case, you know there are more than one choice about you're either with them or you're with us. And once you've learned to do this, once you've started to, to practice this skill, it becomes much easier to spot when someone is trying to use confusion and self-doubt to get you to go against your conscience. Look, I want to remind you, we are living through a fourth turning. That is a tumultuous time. Terrible things are going to happen entirely out of our control. And this is not a new human experience. What's new is the fact that we have a little device that we carry with us that gives us 24-7 awareness of what's going on. And so if you decide what you decide to give your attention and emotion and energy to is what's going to dictate your either peace of mind or lack thereof. So when you look back on your life, are you going to be grateful that I was angry at the right things at the right time? Did you just pass your time engrossed in one emotional event after another? Are you going to allow your screen to dictate your emotional state for the rest of your life? Or... Will you pay closer attention to the things that actually affect you? Look, this isn't being indifferent to the suffering of others. It's putting your moral energy to work for the things that actually affect you and noticing the beauty and the sunshine around you. Now, there might come a time where you are at the center of one of those terrible events. Now, are you going to wish that you had enjoyed the relative peace and stability and health that you once took for granted? Bottom line is we are in a period of immense change right now. The monetary system is in trouble. U.S. military dominance is waning. Artificial intelligence is taking hold. And the political classes across the world are going to do whatever it takes to hold on to power. And that would include deceptive false flag events to stampede us back into their control. All I'm asking you to consider, is it a possibility that's what we're seeing here? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Again, I I apologize if that came off as preachy. I want you to understand that I was once the guy who sat there and cheered as bombs fell on on Iraqis and, you know, lives were eradicated. And I didn't even have a good reason for, you know, well, you know, I mean, I believed that what turned out to be false stories. Well, they, they invaded Kuwait. They took babies out of incubators and left them to die as they stole the incubators from the hospitals. Do you remember that? A Kuwaiti girl testified to Congress. This is what she saw. It was false. It was propaganda. And I only say that because it's been a part of every major war effort ever. Propaganda is a part of it. Truth is the first casualty. You've heard that saying. It's true. 
The Huns are bayoneting babies in Belgium. Okay, then let's get World War I underway and let's, let's make sure we're going there after the Hun. It's the same dynamic. And right now it's being used to stampede us into a war frenzy. So, I mean, some people like that Daily Dread supplement. Some of them want to, you know, tell me more. What's, what's another terrible thing so that I can tell other people about it and emote and show how virtuous I am? Look, look at my avatar. See that flag? That tells you I'm a good person. No, it really doesn't. You know what tells me you're a good person? How you live your life, how you treat other people. In fact, let me give you an example. Just in case, you know, the, I know there's a lot of effort right now to convince us, oh boy, humanity's devolving into savages, but there is goodness out there. So let me share an example of how not all angels have wings. This is from Don Merrill. I picked this up off AmericanThinker.com. She talks about how she was driving home from work and got a flat tire. And she says, pulling off the road at the first opportunity, this was a two-lane highway without shoulders, she says, I stopped in the parking lot of a local business and the owners were sitting outside enjoying the lovely evening. She says, I sheepishly, sheepishly asked if they had a compressor and the gentleman came over to look. Now, his wife went and got the compressor, but he indicated your tire's shot, and it was. So she says, he proceeded to try to put on the spare, but it was clearly the wrong size. It had been replaced a year prior, but not needed until that day. Living paycheck to paycheck, as so many do these days, she says this author is three days from payday, has less than $30 in the bank, and was prepared to ask a friend to borrow some money. The man proceeded to make a phone call, tossed the wheel and bad tire into his beautifully patriotically decorated Jeep, and left. Meantime, his lovely wife brought water, and they went on to have a delightful conversation. She says it was clear we shared political views and a deep love of our country. Not long after, the man returned... He had a brand new tire on the wheel and he put it on the car. She asked him, how much do I owe you? And, he, and, and she wanted actually to write him a post-dated check to cover the expense once she had been paid. He refused and asked only that if she saw him stranded someday to help him as he had helped her. Yeah, you can guess what her answer is. Absolutely, sir. Absolutely. But her point is the, they were both a godsend and she says, I'm extremely grateful for and to them. And listen to what she says next. God works in mysterious ways. Boundless gratitude to him and to them for their kindness, generosity, and humanity. New friends were made as well, and that's the greatest gift of all. Now, I know that's, that's hardly as, uh, you know, gripping as, you know, the latest atrocity or new footage of terrible things happening. But I think we need to be reminded not only that, uh, hey, look, there are good people out there. And it's not always going to be the people you expect, okay? Sometimes you'll see goodness in, in very unexpected places. Learn to look for it. You're going to find what you seek. If you're out there looking for devils, you will find them. After all, you're looking for them, and there are, they're out there. But if you're looking for the goodness in people, you're going to find that. And better still... The lesson I take away from this story is you will have the opportunity to be the person who's an answer to somebody else's prayer, who, who saves the day. Not because you went out there with some hero complex, aha, here I am to save the day, but just because you were paying attention and you recognized somebody in need and were in a position to do so. When that happens, stop shrugging it off as, well, I guess it's a good thing I happened to be you know, driving home that way or, or whatever. 
look, I'm just, I'm not going to speak like, uh, you know, hey, as, as a prophet, I want to tell you this. God told me to tell you. I'm just going to suggest that I don't think there are as many coincidences as we sometimes allow ourselves to believe. I do believe that there is purpose and that, uh, that sometimes God places people in our orbit for very specific reasons. And sometimes it's just the simple thing of helping somebody in a moment of need. But if you want to be that person, you got to turn your heart in a direction other than, okay, who am I supposed to be angry at today? What is supposed to be making me angry and fearful? If that's what's occupying your attention, you're not going to notice the things where you really could help, the things that really do matter and that are happening where you are at the moment. Sorry, I know this sounds preachy. I'll let it go from there. But not before I tell you, it's really humbling and it's, it, 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 just, it brings an incredible sense of peace and do I dare say it, joy to your heart. Either when you are the recipient of someone who, who was in the right place at the right time to help or you are that person who's able to offer that help. It's not about making a big scene so everybody can say, look how good I am, everyone, look. It's about going through the motions of, and the, the hard work of actually being a good person by your actions, by your thoughts, by your awareness of the people around you and how you treat them. All the virtue signaling out there, I know, it's, it's fashionable. And, oh, look, I've got my screen right here. I can, I can take a picture of me. This is the person I helped. Look how good I am. That's not charity. Charity is the kind of thing that, uh, that takes place mostly anonymously, but is so powerful that the person on the receiving end can't help but pay it forward to the person that, that they see in need next time. I've seen a beautiful example of this, and it's, uh, this popped up on my Facebook memories a few days ago, and I was like, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about this video. And they, they did kind of a, I don't know what it was, it was a thought experiment or just, just maybe a kindness experiment, but a, a guy went out and saw like a homeless man sitting there uh, getting ready to eat a sandwich. And he walked over to the homeless guy and he, and he just sat down next to him and talked to him and he says, you know, I'm, I'm really hungry. Would you, would you be willing to share your sandwich with me? And now look, he's talking to a homeless dude. This guy, this dude doesn't know where his next meal is coming from most likely. But without hesitation, the guy, I can't remember if he tore the sandwich in half or if he just handed him the sandwich, but he absolutely was willing to share. And in return, the guy said, look, it's okay. Hang on to your sandwich. He takes out an envelope, and I don't remember how much. I want to say there was like $1,000 in cash in that envelope. And he said, your kindness is so appreciated, and I just want to reward you for that kindness. And he hands him this envelope with a thousand bucks. And you can guess what happened next. I mean, the homeless guy starts to cry, gives him a hug, but then the next thing he does is he starts going to the people around him, the other homeless people, and giving them some of the cash. He's he's sharing what he's, he's not, you know, okay, I got to protect this at all means. I better go buy a gun, you know, so I can protect the rest of it. No. Immediately he starts looking for other people who were also in need 
desperate that he could help. Now, look, I don't share that story just to get you all sentimental. and You better have a tear trickling down your cheek right now. But just to show you that no matter the circumstances, that's the kind of goodness that moves the world in the right direction. And it's out there if you are willing to look for it, or better still, be that kind of goodness. I know there's scary stuff going on. There always has been. There always will be. Put your attention on the stuff that matters and watch how much more normal the world starts to look in a hurry. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. All right, I'm actually feeling pretty calm right now. I feel like, okay, I've got some things off my chest. Now we can move on to a couple other things. Um, I'm a big fan of school choice, especially as I look around and I see it's tr- our public schools, especially in some of the bigger blue states, are becoming a collectivist training ground for leftist teachers to groom young activists. Now, I'm not talking sexually. I'm talking to groom them into, you know, that deconstructive mentality of, you know, everything that came before us was wrong and we must discard it and workers of the world must unite and, you know, they must come together in a glorious revolution. That's what they're, they're trying to make. It's little revolutionaries. And, of course, this is one of the reasons why school choice is becoming an issue and, and is becoming actually a cause that is taking hold in many states. Got a great article here from Perry Sinclair that makes a very solid case that school choice alone isn't enough to save us. Because most people are going to use those public schools. He says, look, we, we've got to stop the flow of Marxists into our classrooms. Perry, Percy says, many on the right are waking up to public schools, indoctrinating children into woke ideologies. X, formerly Twitter accounts like Libs of TikTok, have been exposing public school teachers as Marxists intent on coaxing children into their Gnostic cults. Now, look, it needs to be said. Libs of TikTok does not sit there and doctor the video and tell you this is what they really meant. They simply share with you TikTok videos from these teachers themselves in their own words. And it's extremely damning evidence. I mean, it is really outrageous stuff and then of course you know people on the left oh we need to ban libs of tiktok not because they're sharing any kind of misinformation or because they're they're saying anything that's false but because they're letting those those marxist teachers words speak for themselves now percy sinclair says the right has been predictably outraged and has shown up in force for school board meetings demanding change a few teachers have been fired but there appears to be an endless supply of replacements in the ideological war most americans have started to understand that diversity is a common marxist buzzword when a marxist uses the word diversity he does not mean the standard definition what marxists mean is conformity everyone must conform to what the marxists say is true Marxism thinks it's building toward utopia, but believes that utopia cannot be achieved until, unless, rather, everyone is striving toward the same goal. So there can be no dissent, not even by a single individual. Thus, the modern Marxist operates under the logic of Herbert Marcuse's infamous essay, Repressive Tolerance. Movements from the left must be tolerated no matter how violent, but moves, movements from the right must be pre-censored so that even the offending thought 
does not enter a person's head. That sounds about right. And the demand for ideological conformity has dominated our state universities since the 1960s. Now, the reason for the multitude of Marxists in our public schools is our ideologically captured secondary education systems. To demonstrate this point, a brief survey was conducted of teacher colleges. One state university from each state was selected, and their elementary education degree requirements were evaluated. In every case, at, case, at least one, often more than one, explicitly woke class was either required or recommended. By the way, the worst offender on the list? I know you're thinking, Berkeley. Nope. Arizona State University. The major map on the ASU website listed no, few, no fewer than 10 required or suggested courses containing the words diversity, multiculturalism, equity, inclusivity, global citizen, culturally responsive, or social and emotional. Now, these are all Marxist buzzwords, with some also tying into the idea of global governance promoted by the World Economic Forum. One course, SCN 202, Sustainability, Science Literacy for Engaged Global Citizens, openly admits it's grounded in the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Now, for those who don't know, SDGs are a Marxist attempt to achieve control of the Western world. James Lindsay of New Discourses has done some work exposing the National Education Association's importation of SDGs into the American curriculum. ASU is openly indoctrinating students to contribute to the destruction of America as we know it. And ASU, of course, is hardly the only offender. The University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and Michigan State University require or at least suggest at least six woke courses for their elementary education majors. MSU requires three one-credit seminars entitled Justice and Equity. MSU also requires two three-credit classes entitled Pedagogy and Politics of Justice and Equity in Education, and Social Foundations of Justice and Equity in Education, among other courses. UT Knoxville suggests or requires Sustainable Human Geographies, or Social Justice Education and Service Learning, and Professional Studies for Special Education and Diverse Learners. Now, it should be noted that red states are just as guilty as blue or purple states. Arizona and Michigan... They are purple states, while Tennessee is reliably red. But other reliably red states like Texas and Florida were also guilty. Texas State University offers an elective called Writing for Sustainable Change and requires two courses called Education and Equity in a Diverse Society and Language and Literacy in Diverse Communities. Florida State University requires culturally responsive teaching for equitable instruction rather, and introduction to diversity for teachers in its elementary education majors. Now, predictably, at least some blue states are worse. UCLA offers a major entitled education and social transformation, but this survey merely scratches the surface. There are 1,700 or nearly 1,700 public universities in the United States, and a substantial number undoubtedly issue teaching degrees. This survey covered 50 of them. And furthermore, as many parents realize during lockdowns, what is said in a class may not always match the title and course descriptor. A lecture on proper classroom discipline can easily turn into a lecture on equity, even if the course title says classroom management. Without cameras in every classroom, there's no way to know how bad the indoctrination is. Teacher colleges are infested with Marxists who are indoctrinating your kids, and you're paying for it with taxes and tuition fees. So here's the bottom line. School choice 
won't save us. In an ideal world, school choice is wonderful. It's a great solution, but this is not an ideal world. Even if school choice laws are passed in every state and territory, the problem is not the public education system because that system is is only as good as the teachers and administrators who run it. If we successfully enact school choice laws that will enable the rise of charter and independent schools, well, then the question arises, okay, where are the teachers going to come from? And if your answer to the above question is, well, there are tons of good teachers. The system is the problem. You're thinking like a Marxist. Systems are not the problem. Systems are made up of individuals. And those individuals are being trained to be Marxists. The teachers for the new schools will largely come from the teacher colleges that already exist and and will be just as Marxist as the public school teachers that we have now. Except now there will be no escape. With government funding flowing in, most schools will not take that won't take government funds, rather will go out of business as people vote with their pocketbooks. All but the wealthiest kids will be stuck with Marxist educators forever. Sounds like a good excuse to homeschool, actually. Much like how a mom-and-pop grocery store cannot compete with Walmart because Walmart can price it out of the market. A school that refuses government money will be priced out by those who take it. If I were a Marxist... Percy says, I would be drooling over the school choice movement. However, there is a way to force the Marxists to stop drooling. And the answer needs to go hand in hand with school choice, because again, school choice in principle is a very good thing. But his point is, instead of just fighting for school choice, we need to incorporate defunding the public universities. State governments spend over $100 billion a year on university funding. Every red state in the country should immediately defund any public university in the state that refuses to remove all manifestations of Marxism from its curriculum. Universities should also fire or retire any professor who refuses to go along. Any university with state funding needs to be held accountable. Ron DeSantis set the example with New College in Florida by purging the board and eliminating the diversity office. Virtually every other state, particularly states with red legislature, legislatures and, uh, and governors, should follow suit. Now, Marxism is of necessity parasitic. It cannot build its own institutions. If nothing else, force the NGOs and billionaires that fund the public universities that refuse to submit rather than using our tax dollars to do it. If we want to save the schools, we have to stop the flow of Marxists into them. And turning off the funding spigot is one way to do so. I mean, I don't know about you. That sounds like a pretty solid idea. Although I don't know that it would be very easy to sell people on. I mean, we're pretty attached to the idea, well, the government has to do this. Honestly, I believe the best thing that could happen is separation of school and state. As in get government out of the education business entirely. But there'd be schools out there that would teach Marxism. Absolutely, there would but you wouldn't be forced to pay for it yourself. You wouldn't be forced to send your kid to it, now would you? Let competition dictate who has the better lesson plan, who has the better system, who has the better method and pedagogy. I'm confident that what's good and right and true would, like cream, rise to the top. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
All right, welcome back to the show. Got three quick articles I want to touch on in this final segment of today's show. Um, I think I'm going to start with the article of the day, just because I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. This one has some pretty tough truths, and that's why I, I don't want to feed whatever concerns or anxiety you might be feeling right now. However, if you want to get a really good sense of the societal effects of inflation and how we can know for sure <clears throat> that our monetary system is in real trouble, I would recommend Brandon Smith's latest article at alt-market.us. The societal effects of inflation, how you know things are going really bad. And I mean, he, he talks about, uh, you know, the problem with the effects of inflation is that it can be subtle and far-reaching and it can creep up on us until suddenly there's a whole tidal wave of societal crises. Like affordable houses. Like uh, how many people are driving cars that are 12 years old or older. I know, it's, it's tough. And I'm feeling it too. We are paying so much more for everything in our lives than we were even last year at this time. But if you want to get a really good feel for it, Brandon Smith can tell you exactly what's going on, what, can, what we can expect when things truly go bad. Things like widespread labor strikes, rising crime, government lies, looting, migration. We already saw that with COVID. And ultimately, we have to watch for balkanization. He says, inflation creates chaos, but it can also bring clarity. That which is truly important moves to the forefront of the public consciousness. That's good news. The depraved rise to the surface of the water like so much putrid ocean froth, and people quickly figure out who they want to live with and who they want to live without. That means entire subcultures will form and separate to survive and thrive, while other groups will try to stop them. Now, that means conflict is likely inevitable, but the point remains inflationary crisis has the ability to change everything. So if you want to raise your awareness, that's an article I would recommend. The next article is one from Laura Dodsworth. I grabbed this one from uh, Brownstone Institute's website. And you've heard me talk about, you know, the danger posed by central bank digital currencies. I don't think it can be overstated. This is going to be the most impactful decision that most of us are going to have to make in the very near future. Will I take the digital currency? Will I opt into that system or not? And it's going to be a choice, although it's going to be a pretty coerced choice, as in do you want to function in society or not? Laura Dodsworth explains how CBDCs could be the ultimate tool of oppression. Now, she starts with a quote from... 1984. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Remember the Grand Inquisitor O'Brien from uh, 1984 saying that? She says, alternatively, though, you could imagine a sandal. And then she talks about how last month she visited Sutton Hoo, the famous Anglo-Saxon burial site of a king and his ship in Suffolk. A gold coin pendant in the museum caught her eye, depicting a, a triumphant Roman standing over a conquered barbarian his sandaled foot placed firmly on the supine opponent's chest. Now, the ship burial date probably is somewhere around 625 A.D., long after the Romans had left. The gold could have been melted down by the Anglo-Saxons, but instead it was fashioned into a pendant. Maybe it conferred the prestige of the Roman world onto the wearer, or it was totemic of victory. Maybe it was an ironic reminder that the Romans were gone and every empire has its day. But her point is, 
Coins have always been more than just lumps of precious metals. They're also a means of propaganda and control. And she goes through some history about, you know, imagine handling a coin which depicts your own subjugation. Now, if you were privileged, hardworking, or lucky enough to obtain some of that lucre for yourself, it was still a reminder of the sandal on your chest. Every time you bought a luxury good, your fingers would slide over the embossed symbol of your defeat. Coins remind you of your place in the world. And here she sounds the warning about digital money, particularly central bank digital currencies, and the potential for government through the central bank to see every purchase and transfer you make in real time, and not just see it, but control it. She goes into some great detail here. It's worth your time. But here's the takeaway. Laura Dodsworth says money grants freedom, and so it is weaponized to deny freedom. Domestic abusers restrict access to money and therefore essentials such as food, clothing, and travel. Economic abuse is insidious, effective, and subtle, and of course it leaves no bruises. As with the domestic abuser, the potential is there for government to weaponize money to exert the ultimate financial control. So the jackboot and the sandal were graphic symbols of authority subjugating conquered peoples. If programmable CBDCs are introduced, your own digital financial footprint will be used to control you. And the means of control change over time, but that insatiable desire for total control remains constant. I know that's a, that's a chilling thought, but it's why you need to think it out beforehand instead of when you're standing there trying to decide, do I feed my family? Do I pay the rent? What do I do? What do I do? Maybe you have a backup plan. Last but not least, great article here from Lenore Skenazy, trying to keep horrible crimes in perspective. Now, she's not talking about the massacre in Israel. She's talking about uh, a nine-year-old girl abducted while riding her bike in upstate New York. She's been found and returned to her family alive. And the alleged perp has been seized, bringing the number of active Amber Alerts in the country to one. Keyshawn Williams, a 15-year-old from Cleveland who hasn't been seen since June. Now, one is one too many, obviously, but it's a far cry from the hundreds of thousands that the media mentioned in the coverage of Charlotte's disappearance. Washington Post was saying about 460,000 children in the U.S. are reported missing each year, according to the Justice Department's Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. Now, the reporter added, most are found and returned safely, but the phrasing made it seem as if most had been taken by someone because returned to safety sounds as if the cops or someone else found the child and returned them to their parents. And by the way, most seems to imply that at least a sizable chunk never made it home. But in fact, the number of stranger abductions every year in America is somewhere between 52 and 306 a year. Now, those are sad numbers, but they're more than 100 times lower than the numbers mentioned in the post. Yes, the 460,000 number comes from the Office of Juvenile Justice. But so does the estimate of 52 to 306 stranger abductions. So it would call most parents at least a little if they didn't worry that nearly half a million kids are abducted even if later found and returned and returned safely every year. In a country with nearly 50 million kids of elementary school age, half a million abductions would mean a couple children per elementary school were snatched each year. By the time your kid graduated fifth grade at a medium-sized school, they'd have seen about 20 kids abducted, almost an entire classroom full. But thankfully, that's nowhere near the case. Lenore Skenazy says, clearly we can't say that there is no crime in America or that no children are ever abducted, only that this crime is so rare 
that we are all thanking heavens for the one single child our whole country focused on and prayed over for two very troubling days. Now, if you're looking for more stats, are you? She says, do stats ever move the fear needle? Well, here are a few. She says, I went to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children's website. Scroll down and you'll see a graph of the number of children abducted by strangers in 2022 whose cases remained open. Three. Another 98 were resolved. Now, those numbers are dwarfed by the number of runaways. That's almost 20,000. And the family abductions. In other words, kids taken in custodial disputes of divorced parents. That was about 1,500. She says, yes, abduction is every parent's nightmare, but for the sake of our own sanity and our kids' mental health, we must try hard not to let it dictate every parenting decision because avoiding any risk often creates a risk of its own. To wit, parents who fear kidnapping may drive their kids to school, but far more children die in car accidents than abductions. It hurts to point this out, but it's also true that ever more children are falling into anxiety and despair and even harming themselves. And part of that despair can be traced to having so little independence to play, explore, or, yes, even ride their bikes. She says it's impossible to keep kids perfectly safe. Laws, practices, and parenting decisions often try to achieve this goal, but if there's any way to keep the sad and then miraculous story of Charlotte Cena from making us question every freedom, that's the nine-year-old who was abducted and then found, every freedom we give our kids... If we, if we keep it from making us question every freedom we give our kids, we owe it to them to try. I love that she's just calling, keep it in perspective. Really, that's what we need, I think, at every single level. And I don't pretend that, uh, yes, I do it perfectly and uh, never, ever struggle. I struggle to keep things in perspective myself. But like I was saying earlier, If you put your focus on looking for the good, or for that matter, trying to be a source of goodness or light, it becomes a lot easier. And it doesn't help to be prepared, you know, for the worst. But I don't think we should slink around, you know, in a state of apprehension around every corner thinking it's just waiting to happen to me. This is The Brian Hyde Show.